Welcome to The Five Things This Week in Social. We're the Webby Award-winning podcast that normally brings you the top five stories in social each week. But this week, we come bearing a special edition of the podcast to acknowledge and celebrate Pride this year. If you're a marketer, an advertiser, a creator, an ally, or a member of the LGBTQIA community, then this is the podcast for you. Today on the pod, we have some new and some familiar faces. Firstly, you know her, you love her, you've heard her on the pod a few times before, senior strategist Alex Black. Hi, Alex. Happy Pride. Hello, my dearest Daniel. Now tell me, Alex, what are you excited about or looking forward to for Pride this year? Yeah, I'm mostly excited to be in New York City in Brooklyn and being with my chosen community. I love that. I'm looking forward to similar vein of things. Now I'm curious, you know, we are going to be focusing on some other topics today, but as we are marketers, what do you hope to see or are you excited to see from brands this year? Yeah, I know it's a little hot right now, but I am hoping to see a lot more action. We've talked about donations, we've talked about walking the walk, but especially right now, while some are getting a little bit more scared of being a part of the conversation and taking action, I hope a lot of others step up to the plate. Agreed. Next, we are joined by Alba Anthony, our head of people here at Gray. Hi, Alba. Welcome to the pod and happy Pride. Hi there. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. So same question to you. I'm curious what you're most looking forward to this year for Pride, either the the event itself or or what you're hoping to see from brands. Well, what I hope is to see authenticity from brands, quite frankly. As we take this, I'm like, okay, so tomorrow's when we start to see the rainbow everywhere. And then, you know, as soon as June 30th comes, it goes away. We we fold our flags up and put them away for the year. And quite frankly, that doesn't feel good. I just want brands, especially in today's times, be thoughtful about what they do, what they say, their partnerships, and be willing to stand beside and behind whatever it is that they put out there. Your words to God's ears. Let's hope that brands hold themselves accountable and you know the community will if they do not. So lastly, but not leastly, we are joined by Associate Integrated Producer Jasmine Reyes. Hello, Jasmine. Welcome to the pod and happy Pride to you. Hello, hello. Thanks so much. Happy Pride. So Inquiring Minds want to know, the same question that we've asked Alex and Alba. Um, what are you most excited about for Pride this year or what do you hope to see from brands? Yeah, I mean, obviously super excited about the Pride Parade here in New York. It's always a good time to go participate and see and participate in all the events. But echoing kind of what Alex and Alba were saying, authenticity intentionality behind what they're doing instead of just saying we need to make a pride ad because it's the right thing to do making sure it's makes sense not just doing pride for the sake of pride so that's what i'm hoping to see well hello i've spoken a lot but i haven't said my name i am daniel avon and i am looking forward to celebrating by re-watching some touchstone documentaries such as paris burning the queen disclosure among many others and from brands in line with what y'all are saying, particularly as it relates to the trans and drag bands that have been taking this country by storm, I hope that brands use this as a moment to meaningfully step up, commit, and do what they can to take on what is affecting a lot within our community. So you may have noticed, even though you may or may not be familiar with my voice, listener of the pod, that we are without one voice that we usually hear, our fearless leader and executive producer, Joey Scarillo. 
Fear Not is simply giving space this week to allow all of us on the panel in collaboration with Integrated Gray's Employee Resource Group for DEI efforts and an effort that they have undertaken with Alex's leadership to present this special Pride edition of The Five Things. While we normally feature five stories in social, this week we'll be featuring five stories of some of the many unsung or not sung enough heroes within the LGBTQIA community who have helped to achieve much of the progress and joy we appreciate and celebrate today, though the battle is still very much not over. So to give you a heads up on what we're going to see in the podcast today, I will kick us off by talking about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who were prominent figures in the Stonewall Uprising and founding members of activist groups in the modern movement The Uprising Ignited. Then Alba will be discussing Bayard Rustin, an African-American leader in the civil rights, nonviolence, and gay rights movements. Then Jasmine will speak to us about Barbara Giddings, a leading activist for LGBTQIA plus equality and legal and medical acknowledgement and protections of the group. Next, Alex will tell us about two key people of the first trans clinic, Magnus Hirschfeld, the doctor, advocate, and founder, and Dora Richter, the first patient to receive gender-affirming surgery. Lastly, I will round us out with one of my favorites, Justin Vivian Bond, an artist of the current era, credited by many as being one of the best cabaret artists of their generation. So let's talk about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, most well known as the core leaders of the first Pride marches, which originated as protests followed the Stonewall riots in New York City. But there's a lot more to the story than just that. So Marsha Pay It No Mind Johnson, that's what the P stands for, and Sylvia Rivera were friends and prominent figures in the 60s and 70s gay rights movements in New York City. For the most part, we've seen a lot of acknowledgement in recent years from organizations and governing bodies that have created awareness around them. Monuments have been created, parks have been named, but it still can't be emphasized enough what they contributed to the community's progress, what they stood for, and how that holds true today, and how that needs to be heard, re-emphasized, and resung. And it's the reason why we're leading off with Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera today. So a little bit on Marsha's background. She came to the city from New Jersey just after graduating high school with $15 and a bag of clothes. As a child assigned male at birth, she enjoyed dressing up in women's clothing, but stopped in her teen years when she was bullied and assaulted. But once in the city, she was able to kind of embrace this Marsha identity, take she her pronouns and really live her truth. But at the time, and which is still true today, she experienced housing and job insecurity because there were no protections and even fewer opportunities for members of the LGBTQIA plus community and even less so for Black trans women. At 17, she met Sylvia Rivera, a Puerto Rican trans woman who was 11 at the time, and they quickly became friends. So fast forward to the part that you know, June 28th, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn. The patrons of the Stonewall were largely cisgender gay men, but it also included trans individuals of which Marsha and Sylvia were some of the first to enter the bar, because it was pretty exclusionary in the beginning. Following a little bit of a night at the bar, Police raided, which was a common thing at the time, but this time the patrons resisted in a meaningful way and started a series of riots and protests that lasted for six days. There are competing stories of 
Marcia and Sylvia's attendance and when and where they arrived, but it is very clear that they were on the front lines of these protests and led a series of protests following that event. These events, for those who don't know, are the reason why we celebrate Pride in June and why we celebrate Pride at all. Now, Sylvia and Marcia tried to engage with gay rights groups, but a similar story to the Stonewall They were exclusionary and often disrespectful of them as trans individuals and persons of color. So they started their own group to address issues that were close to their hearts. The group was called STAR, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, an amazing name, which aimed to help young trans individuals who were dealing with many of the things that they dealt with when they came to the city and honestly dealt with into adulthood housing and job insecurity. And they also use this as a platform to criticize and hold accountable the organizations that were excluding them. You'll see videos of them at pride rallies kind of holding these these folks accountable for the issues of the extended community and not just those that were achieving rights very quickly. Marsha, on her account, never lost sight of fighting for the community at large, all folks within the community, and doing so with humanity and humor regardless of what was going on. Leading into the AIDS epidemic, she herself was diagnosed with AIDS, unfortunately, but she still advocated. She still used that as a platform to kind of advocate for the proper treatment of folks who were dealing with the disease to say, don't fear these people. These are people that need love. They need to be taken care of. Marsha, unfortunately, was murdered shortly after July 4th, 1992, and the case is still unsolved despite petitions and attempts for further investigations. If you've seen the documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, it kind of covers this and brings it into a contemporary era that this is emblematic of. That moment and the current moment where so much of the violence that's happening is not handled in the best way by the authorities, and there's so much need for these cases to be addressed and this violence to be minimized, diminished, or erased completely. For me, Marsha and Sylvia are such amazing role models, but they stood by their word and their intent. They fought hard. They put themselves out there. They put themselves in sometimes at risk, but they never lost their humanity, their joy for life. And in spite of everything in society that was going against them and what they were dealing with personally, they are also a reminder of who were the catalysts of the movement, often trans folks of color, and how in the modern era there is still so much ground to cover in terms of securing rights, ending prejudicial treatment and bias, and making way for the entirety and intersections of the LGBTQIA plus community to live full lives. Amazing. Off of that, advocates, of course, are a huge part of our discussion today. So those were great examples to kick off with. And it's important in this podcast and at large. So Alba, can you talk a little bit more about the political advocacy of Bayard Rustin? Sure. One thing that's most important for us to recognize is in a lot of places, as you just shared, homosexuality was illegal, you know, in the time in which he grew up. And it kind of hindered his ability to be as prominent a figure as he would and should have been for all of the things that he assisted with. And so I'll get a little bit more into that. He was basically the architect of what we know as Washington. But prior to that, he had done a ton of work all over the place. Like he is a Quaker or was raised a Quaker and 
was a Quaker throughout his life, which meant that he kind of always led on the nonviolent side of things. So when we think about the civil rights movement, particularly when we think about it with respect to Dr. King, we think a lot about it being, you know, nonviolent, a lot of protests, a lot of things, you know, there were no riots and things like that. They were often getting beaten, not being the beaters. And a lot of that came from Bayard Rustin. Um, because of his own personal beliefs. And he was the one who kind of got Dr. King to kind of read about Gandhi and, and learn about those kinds of things, which is really, really important. The problem for him came in with his homosexuality. He was actually convicted in California, but at the time were felonies, which is, you know, ridiculous to think of now, but was caught in a car with two men and was convicted of that. And that was brought up many times to derail some of the progress that he was trying to make in, in the form of civil rights. Even Senator Strom Thurmond threatened, and, and I'm going to release this information so that they would be forced to put him further into the background. Similarly, with the Marshall in Washington itself, who worked very closely with A. Philip Randolph. And the reason he is not the leader of that is because of these felonies that followed him. Every time he tried to do something, it was like, oh, but we're going to pull this out on you. We have these these things about you and that will make people not listen to you. That will make what you're saying less important. That will make people devalue you and your opinions as a human, which is utterly ridiculous to, to consider. And I think it was not until 2020 that Gavin Newsom um, completely wiped away that conviction. And so you think about this, like this is a person who was one of the first freedom writers who helped, you know, really the SCLC, had to step down from the SCLC because of this. It was almost as if they recognized his power and his true leadership, and they had the thing that they could use. They accused him of being in a relationship with Dr. King. They really, at every turn, used his homosexuality as an attempt to silence him and to silence the work that he was doing. And he was so important. He was a very critical figure, almost a backbone of all of these movements. And unfortunately, his homosexuality was something that was always a part of him, as it should have been, but always used against him and used to make sure that progress wasn't made, which was really, I mean, when you think about it, from, for all of the people that we're talking about, who you are and what you are, really shouldn't be the thing that's held against you, right? Like there's literally nothing he could do about this. And the the interesting thing is you think about like all the thoughts about masculinity and all of this stuff, the people that he worked with and fought with, they were fine with it. <laughs> it was Bayard being Bayard and you do what you do. But unfortunately, they knew enough to know he couldn't be the face of this. And that's why a lot of times his name is not really one that's prominently known. He's not a figure that is prominently known. And it is really only and truly because of his homosexuality. So Alba, that is really great context of who he was, what was missing and what his impact could have been at a much larger scale. So what is something that you really hope people get out of learning about his story and some of the other people that we're talking about today? I want people to understand that the, the issues and concerns that we're having today are not new. They're not fresh. This isn't novel. This has been happening. People have been marginalized. People have been quieted. People have been pushed out of seats that they definitely deserve to have for a very, very long time. And it's important for us to understand kind of where we were, to understand where we're going. Like it is 
crazy to me that someone as amazing as Marsha P. Johnson, right? And, and as big as that legacy is, and now here we are in 2023 and we don't want trans people to exist in the world. And the idea that we are now this many years later still having this conversation is absurd. And so I want people to, you know, not just listen and hear what we're saying, but understand that this is just a small number of people who are impactful, who are important, who have legacies that live on, not just through being gay or just through being, you know, um, uh, parts of that community, but through being humans who have impacted each and every one of our lives in some way, shape, or form. Like, every single thing that they did touches us in some way. And if you try to make these people go back away, it's not gonna happen. It's, it's not, you know, the, the Pandora's box was opened in the 60s and we made it a thing, right? It's not gonna happen. And so I think it is really, really important for us to understand the history so that we can then build on it and not try to erase it. Absolutely. And there's another huge key figure of the civil rights movement and the queer movement of the 60s that was an absolute marvel. And we don't really hear enough about the women or the femme people who were also a part of this movement. So Jasmine, can you take us through a little bit more about the marvel that was Barbara Giddings? Yeah, absolutely. Truly a marvel. I didn't know as much about her before coming to this pod and I really dug into her history. And, you know, she's allegedly regarded as the the mother of the LGBT civil rights movement. But I also feel like no one really knows anything about her. But like she's so important to so many core parts of the movement. So, you know, she organized and started the New York chapter of the first lesbian civil rights organization. So she was involved very, very early on and, you know, making sure that there was visibility of queer rights. And through that, she then helped organize the first annual public demonstrations for gay and lesbian equality from 65 to 69 which then led into the Stonewall riots. So they kind of like paved the way of public demonstrations to then give Sylvia and Marsha and everybody who participated in the Stonewall riots a little bit more visibility. So that way, when those riots became the annual protest that we know as Pride, she kind of laid that foundation to Pride. And another big thing that Barbara kind of led the way on, which is huge, is she led the fight to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness with the APA and wasn't just, you know, writing letters. She was in their faces. She was going to meetings. She was holding up their meetings, you know, saying this isn't okay. She spoke in front of the Department of Defense, you know, saying being gay isn't an illness. It's not a disease. It's not evil. We're just people just trying to live our lives. And, you know, it's sad that today people are still making that argument of we're just people trying to live our lives, just trying to love the people that we love. We're not hurting anybody. So, you know, it's kind of sad that we're still fighting the same fight that Barbara was fighting very early on in the 60s and the early 70s. But it's good to know that like there are people who took that first stand and said, you know what, I'm not going to let this stand anymore. I'm going to, you know, keep pushing to make sure that we're seen as humans. So I think like what you're saying about getting in front of like medical boards and really just kind of making the human case is such an interesting and beautiful thing, but also sad that it still has to be made today. I'm curious, Jasmine, how do you think that this kind of mission of humanizing or like appealing from a human perspective evolves to today's context? You know, there's a lot of conversation going on about 
drag and trans bans that are happening. And a lot of the people that are making those decisions don't even know a trans person themselves and are, are saying these types of things. Or don't knowingly know that they know a trans person, you know, that people don't always know they're speaking to a trans person or not. And that's, you know, a really big issue is that like a lot of the people who are against trans people say, you know, oh, you can always tell nine times out of 10, they can never tell. And that's, you know, the key point is people are just trying to live their lives. And it's kind of hard because Barbara's whole thing was, you know, removing the shroud of invisibility around the queer community. And right now the queer community is hyper visible in a way, especially like you mentioned with the trans bills and the drag queen bills of just trying to ban the existence of trans people and, you know, queer people just in a public setting, just existing outside. So it's they're, it's highly visible, but yet like very unseen. We're not truly seeing people for who they are. And I feel like, you know, the best way, at least nowadays, to kind of like push against that is, especially for brands, you know, just like not being scared of like that really loud minority who's going to be mad regardless. You can't make everybody happy. And so often everybody's trying to make everybody happy and it's just not possible. So it's really important to just recognize this is a stance that I'm not going to be popular for at least for the loudest people in the room. But it's not about appeasing those loud people. It's about taking a stance, treating everybody with the dignity that they deserve, showing queer people just in everyday scenarios. It doesn't have to be a big pride activation. Like Alba was saying, we hit June 30th and then no one really cares about pride anymore. Like just cast a queer couple. They're just the parents of the ad. Who it doesn't need to be a quote unquote gay ad. Just put them in the ad. Just show that, you know, queer people, they're not scary. They're not coming to steal your children in the middle of the night. Just trying to live their lives. I can't agree enough. That's an amazing answer and perspective. Thank you for, for responding. Yeah. So going back in history, it's very important for us to not lose sight of history that actually happened before the modern queer movement in the U.S. Let's go back actually a full century to talk about the major queer and trans movement of the 1920s in Germany. Alex, tell us about that. I would love to. So this is something that I've definitely nerded out about a lot. So let's talk about Magnus Hirschfeld. So this was probably one of the first intersectional everythings, doctor, anthropologist, writer of our time, especially within the queer movement. So a lot of his work was specifically around sexuality and gender and was the first person really written, at least in Germany, to be like, hmm, I don't know, something about homosexuality seems okay and right. And something about wanting to be the gender that feels right to you is also okay. So let's dig into that. So he did a full world tour that went to different continents to see what sexuality and gender meant and looked like and how it was refuted in different countries. And then kind of gathered all the thoughts, saw that it was pretty consistent around the world. And that led to a lot of different communities and literature and political acts. So he helped found the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which really looked at how we make everyone feel <laughs> included, specifically in the queer community, in the Black community. He worked a lot with Black women in Africa to kind of 
refute a lot of stereotypes and things that wound up getting them mutilated or killed. So that was kind of just the beginning. And then throughout his time, he also worked specifically with German authorities to repeal what was called paragraph 175, which was basically a code that could out anyone. We just heard Bayard Rustin's story about how him being outed obviously led to his demise politically in a lot of ways. But in 1920s Germany, it did get people arrested and killed. So this is something that he worked really diligently on with a full community, including Albert Einstein. So this was a huge pass within a major Western government to really recognize that people are people and basing certain restrictions off of sexuality or appearance was not okay. So fast forward that he really continued his work and created community. We talk a lot in the queer community about chosen family and what happens if your family doesn't necessarily accept you and the community that you continue to find that you can relate to or continue to love. And so he helped found the first trans clinic and queer clinic in Germany, where he, his partner, drag artists, trans people all got together and were able to live in this institution that not only respected them, but used them as models of how to think and accept sexuality and gender in the future. And one of those residents was Dora Richter, who was the first recorded woman to receive gender-affirming surgery. So just the space that they were able to create, the fact that Magnus was a doctor himself, he didn't perform the surgery, but he was able to get Dora and other people connected with those doctors and surgeons who could and would obviously change the course of trans accessibility and models and the movement um, over a century ago. So we have heard the story of the Danish girl, which was based off of Lily Elby. But, you know, I don't know how there aren't tons of movies and books about these people who really paved such a huge way in every aspect that we're still fighting today. Thank you, Alex, for opening our eyes to that amazing past. As Alba was saying, it's kind of maddening that we've had this conversation in history over and over again. But it seems kind of interesting from the perspective that Hirschfeld kind of looked at things. It was like equal parts anthropology or mental and then medical or physical. Why do you think that was important or how do you think that that helped him to make an impact at the world at the time that he was, you know, practicing I think there's an obvious thread of, for lack of a better term, being narrow-minded when people don't understand and they don't live the same truth that you do. It's really hard to mentally and emotionally wrap your head around someone's experience, especially one that is so different from your own when it comes to love and relationships and your body. So for him to take that step back, he didn't technically come out as gay, at least within his own writings. But there are pictures of him holding hands with his partner. So for him to acknowledge that within himself and, you know, have this burst of not only creativity, but of curiosity to seek out, are there other people like me? Is it just within my community? No, it is literally all over the world. That being a huge step to normalize it, find those people, create community. 
And then take it that step farther of, okay, if it's not just relationships and people are experiencing it with gender, then how do we create space to see how much that does affect the people who are impacted by it and who are trans? So his impact is pretty obvious in that way. But I think it just goes to the point of how do we follow in his footsteps as allies, as advocates, as those who are living the truth. And that is to continuously step outside of yourself and bridge community and people. Well, now that we went back a century, let's fast forward to a much more alive and humorous figure and one of Daniel's favorites, Justin Vivian Bond. Take it away, Daniel. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, let's talk about mixed Justin Vivian Bond, who also goes by Viv for short. They are a trans artist, singer-songwriter, and actor who takes they-them pronouns and has been active in the entertainment industry since the late 80s. So while they are not representing that time period, there is some overlap and intersection with some of the figures that we have spoken about so far today. You may have seen them in Short Bus or in Can You Ever Forgive Me? They were the lounge singer that when I saw them on screen, I was like, oh my goodness, there they are. That's amazing. But they are a Tony Award nominee and winner of an Obie, a Bessie, and other awards. And they are seen as one of, if not the best, cabaret artists of their generation. They first broke into the scene in 1993 during the AIDS epidemic with Kiki and Herb, in which Bond played and sang as Kiki, and Kenny Melman played Herb, their accompanist. Against a backdrop of then-Mayor Giuliani cracking down on queer clubs, the AIDS crisis is happening... Bond used Kiki and Herb as a way to channel their anger and sadness, as well as kind of a defiant, cathartic, and iconic act that was awarded by the GLAAD Awards, um, but really didn't see sort of the mass uh, success. It was seen as kind of like niche for the community. But since then, they've continued to perform, continued to get kind of a, a, a community of people around them, mostly as a solo artist, but notably and recently in a show called An Octave Apart with the countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo. So Justin Vivian Bond singing the lower part of the register, Anthony singing the higher part of the register. But the music and performances that they create have this amazing droll sense of humor, but is also so grounded and has such a strong and knowing community. They're pushing against norms, but creating a new language. And there's always this under or overtone of activism and advocacy in everything that they do. They acknowledge icons of the past and the current conversations that we're facing into today. Like Their career has spanned a lot of queer history and they have been a part of the conversation every step of the way. Personally, my favorite is their holiday shows that they do every single year at Joe's Pub. And there's a song called Somebody's House Always Burns at Christmas. It's as funny and charming as it sounds. But kind of more broadly, as a queer person myself, seeing their work feels like home. It makes me proud and in awe to be part of this community. It's somebody that we today can go and see how talented, smart, incisive, and genuine they are. And it's also kind of insane how they've been able to stay so relevant after 40 years in the entertainment industry, but as relevant as I personally see them to be and as much recognition as they may get within a small community to be called the best trans artist of their generation. So many more people should hear their story. They're just really not as appreciated, in my biased opinion, as, as they deserve. First off, it sounds like we need to do a field trip to their holiday show <laughs> this year. But 
Daniel, what do you think would make Justin Vivian Bond more of a sung hero? I think a few things. Like the awards that they have been nominated for and received are of the community or smaller and niche or made niche. Niche is a term in the entertainment industry that is used to marginalize marginalized people, saying your art is not mainstream, it's not for everybody, everyone doesn't need to see this. It's a lie. There is so much universality in their work in the way that it is so true, genuine, and specific to them. And I don't have a trans experience. I have a gay male experience. I just see so much of like the way that I view the world and the different things that I observe about other people and things that challenge me and push me to think differently in their work. So I think they should win an honorary Grammy. She'd be recognized by these bigger organizations because of the footprint, the impact that they've had um, over the years. But also, it's just kind of a canary in the coal mine of many, many canaries that there are, that there is such talent and such amazingness within this community that often goes ignored by the masses and seemingly by choice by the institutions that play like the Grammys, the Oscars, the Emmys, whatever's of the world that are really just picking and choosing the performances that they want to bring forward that feel more emblematic of the queer experience, but that are not like the everyday individual, sort of their whole thing and life as, as we've kind of talked about in the podcast today. Well, that is a great place for us to wrap. And that does it for us today. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, or write us with questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, or just send us a thing you want to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcast at gray.com. Of course, I would love to thank our panel today, Daniel Avon, Alba Anthony, and Jasmine Reyes. We hope to have you all back on the podcast at some point in the future. It was a true pleasure to give time and space to these important folks with you. This episode was produced by me, Alex Black, and Daniel Avon. And as always, we want to thank Joey Scarillo, Samantha Geller, and Amanda Fuentes, and the crew over at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes for making us sound great. On the next episode of Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas, Host Jason Connor speaks with Rob Herding, the founder and CEO of Q-Code, the Los Angeles-based audio production studio behind star-studded and critically acclaimed fiction podcasts like Blackout with Rami Malek, Carrier with Cynthia Revo, Dirty Diana with Demi Moore, and Hank the Cowdog with Matthew McConaughey. You'll hear Rob's story of how he left his job at a talent agency with the pursuit of giving creatives a new outlet to tell their stories. Check out Rob's story or any of our past episodes of Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas, anywhere you find this podcast. That does it for us. Thank you, listeners. And please, as always, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York, produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin, with post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.